You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. And let's acknowledge this, that it's somewhat understandable, if not totally excusable. Because Paul's claim of innocence implied that his judges had been unfaithful. That's what they were saying. In his speech, you remember, Stephen had done the same thing, only he accused them explicitly. When he was being stoned, or at least before he was being stoned, he said, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And for that, Stephen was stoned to death. And so we condemn the high priest's order, but we can understand why he did it. He was offended. And striking Paul was against the law because it was premature and unjust, and not one to take injustice by lying down, Paul responded vehemently, God is going to strike you. Can you imagine standing before the Supreme Court and saying something like this? God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And I think what this was, in effect, was a prophecy about the punishment awaiting the tyrannical high priest himself. Ananias appeared religious on the outside, but within he was like a tomb, corrupt. And God was going to smite him with a severe stroke. As a matter of fact, J.A. Alexander tells us that according to the historian Josephus, this Ananias in the beginning of the Jewish war was taken from an aqueduct in which he was hiding and was put to death by assassins. Perhaps some of the very same zealots whose fanaticism he encouraged and inflamed against Paul. Well, the Sanhedrin was a Supreme Court of Israel comprised of Sadducees and Pharisees. And these two groups despised each other. They rarely agreed on anything. Their mutual antagonism might be compared perhaps to the division in our own American politics. Yet surprisingly, in jointly opposing Christianity, they were able to put aside their animosity for one another. And they did this with respect to Jesus, and they were now doing it with respect to Paul. They could come together when they opposed God. And of course, the apostle was well aware of the bad blood between them. And being innocent as a dove and shrewd as a serpent, he used it to his advantage. While the Pharisees affirmed the resurrection of the dead, the Sadducees vehemently denied it. So Paul cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And it was brilliant. (laughs) It was brilliant. Their selfish ambition was even more potent than their opposition. The Sadducees were seeking preeminence over the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were seeking preeminence over the Sadducees. 
and confusion reigned temporarily, and Paul succeeded in thwarting their designs. And such was the turmoil that the tribune again had to intervene and establish peace. And I hope you're with me. I feel sympathy for this man. The soldier was trying so hard to keep the peace and to find the truth. (laughs) And at every turn, he met with trouble. And he had no idea why. What was he to do with this puzzling and seemingly contentious Jew? And I think a close and careful consideration of the case helps identify the real issue. The trumped-up charge against Paul was defiling the Jerusalem temple. But that wasn't true. There was no evidence. There were no witnesses. The real issue was whether or not Judaism was willing to embrace Christianity as the fulfillment. That was the issue. And it's obvious from what we learn here that this they would never do. The Jewish leaders had nothing but animosity toward Christ and his followers. And far from embracing the truth, they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul tells us in Romans 1. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the covenant promises. He is the Messiah. But the Jewish leadership would not receive him. They refused to believe in his name, just like so many today. And at this meeting, there are three worldviews that collide. And I want us, in the time remaining, to consider these three worldviews. Your view of the world, the way you look at reality, that's a worldview. First, there were the Sadducees whose worldview was rationalistic. Not rational, that's a good thing, rationalistic. And by this I mean a person who esteems human reason as the judge of all things. The rationalist believes that all truth comes from human reason. He thinks that he's able to sit in judgment of all things, including the Bible. But the believer knows that truth comes not from reason, but through reason. God reveals his truth in the scriptures. The mind grasps it and the heart embraces it. And hence, reason is simply an instrument. It is through reason that truth comes to the heart. For indeed, Christianity, as you probably know this morning, is a religion of the heart. It has to be embraced by the heart or it will be lost. If revelation stops in the mind and fails to reach the heart, it doesn't do any good whatsoever. And human reason, let's be honest, it's a gift from God. It's a vital facet of being made in the image of God, reason, rationality. Our standards teach us this. God created man, male and female, and endued them with living, reasonable, immortal souls. That distinguishes you and I from the creatures. Reasonable souls. So God in his word deals with us in a rational way. He reasons with us. He renews us 
He persuades the will, he draws the affections, and he does this by first opening the mind. And as the mind receives and grasps his promises, the heart is enabled to embrace them. As Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's who you are, how you think in your heart. It's the inward man with which God is most keenly interested. But human reason serves a vital function in Christianity as what we call the handmaid of faith. It helps faith. It's the instrument by which we understand God's written revelation. It's how we illustrate and compare and conclude and support biblical truth, the reason. And apart from reason, neither you nor I could grasp the meaning of any passage in Scripture. Isn't this what God says? Come now, let us reason together. So human reason does play in a very important role in the Christian faith. The problem with the rationalist or with rationalism is the undue confidence placed in reason. It views reason not as the instrument of faith, but as the foundation of it. Reason becomes the judge by which all things must be weighed. Everything is judged by the standard of logic and intelligibility. If something seems reasonable, I'll believe it. If something seems unreasonable, I reject it. That's a rationalist. Why do you think the Unitarians reject the Trinity? Because to them it seems absolutely absurd. How can you reason the Trinity? The Sadducees rejected the supernatural mysteries of the Christian faith. They denied the resurrection. They denied the existence of angels. They denied any other spirits whatsoever because these things appeared contrary to reason and therefore they rejected them. Oh, come on. The resurrection. It's irrational. Dead people, everybody knows, don't rise from the grave. Besides, there's no evidence to its veracity. We've never seen it. The same was said with regard to angels and spirits. There's no proof. There's no empirical evidence to establish the existence of angels. However, the rationalist fails to reckon with what we call the noetic effects of the fall. That word noetic comes from the Greek word nous, which means mind. They fail to reckon with the sinful effects upon the mind. Not just the heart, but the mind. God made us rational creatures. It's a wonderful thing. But the Bible teaches that every aspect of human nature is depraved, including our minds. And that means that by nature, neither you nor I can use our mind or our reason the way we should. The noetic effects of the fall. In fact, sinful man employs his reason now to suppress the truth and to justify sin. Sinners call evil good and good evil. 
And the unregenerate, unrenewed mind is futile, darkened, ignorant, and hard. And that's why Paul says that the sinner has been given up to a debased mind. That's why every thought must be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Human reason must be subjected to the faith that was revealed once for all in the Scripture. And the mysteries of Christianity, the Trinity, for example, goes far beyond human reason. I don't understand it. How about the hypostatic union? Here you have the eternal Son of God, God and man. I don't get it. I can't figure it out. But it's not against reason. It's beyond reason. Such mysteries are not part of our natural experience in this world. They can't be proved by sensory perception. They can't be proved by scientific investigation. And they go beyond reason which cannot sit in judgment. I love the saying of Augustine, one of the great church fathers. This is what Augustine said. I do not believe because I understand but I understand because I believe. Very helpful. We can draw conclusions from what God has revealed in the word and which is why reason is the handmaid to faith. It is the Hagar, not the Sarah. Reason serves the believing heart. It enables the soul to embrace the mystery. And the religion of the Sadducees was rationalistic. They were proud and they were arrogant. They reveled in their reasonableness, but because it was greatly distorted and perverted by sin, it was not a reliable guide. It fails to recognize or admit that sin has left us both blind and weak. I wonder if anybody here struggles with this. Perhaps they just can't get past the incomprehensible nature of the triune God or the mysteriousness of the hypostatic union or angels that we can't see. I wonder if anybody here struggles with that. I've said this before, but I remember a woman sitting right over there every Sunday night for about six months who told me I can't believe because she couldn't understand. I told her, you won't believe. And if you do, you will understand. Because it's only by God's grace that this inbred perversity of mind can be overcome. So first, we must resign ourselves to the faith and submit ourselves to Scripture. When reason presumes to judge God's revelation, it behaves as a usurper. Christian minds learn to sit at the feet of the faith content in revealed things. We're content the secret things belong to the Lord our God, said Moses, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. We're never going to understand the Trinity. Even in eternity, you and I are not going to fully understand it. We simply take God at his word and trust him as the God of truth. None of his truths, none of his works are unreasonable. As I said so many times, they're above beyond reason. And you and I are saved not by mastering the doctrines, but by trusting in Christ. Second, let's admit that the weakness and corruption of the natural human reason is true. 
As Christians, we have to acknowledge the limits of reason. We don't pass judgment upon God and his word. We recognize ourselves as incompetent judges of God's mysteries. Look what it says in Job 42. He says, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. I had heard of you, Lord, by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And third, let's be aware of the evil and danger of a purely rationalistic religion. It's prone to error. It slights wisdom and sovereignty and truth and the supernatural. It refuses to admit that the foolishness of God is wiser than man. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. That's the first worldview, rationalism. But then there's the second. It's that of the Pharisees, whose perspective was what we call formalistic. That was rationalistic. This is formalistic. These men did not deny, but they affirmed the doctrines revealed in God's word. They confessed the resurrection of the dead, the existence of angels, the reality of spirits. In that sense, they were very orthodox. We might call them confessional. They followed all the forms, but their hearts were far from Christ. Their problem was not doctrinal error because they were orthodox, but while they were orthodox, they were spiritually dead. And their great obstacle was a lack of spirit, or better yet, a hardness of heart. And this led them to affirm true doctrines, but to live false lives. They were hypocrites. And hence, theirs was a formalistic religion. They were concerned primarily with the forms. It's taken up with outward things while it ignores and overlooks inward things. For a formalist, it's all a matter of appearance. How do you look? Not just dress, but you look religious. It's not a religion that influences and governs both the heart and the life. That's not what it's about for the formalist. Some describe it as having the husk of religion, but not having the kernel, the inside, the really important part. The formalist performs the duties of religion with no joy in his heart or belief in his soul. And this was the religion of the Pharisees. Oh, they believed in the resurrection, did they? They believed in it. They affirmed it. They took pride in confessing the doctrines, but that made no real difference in their lives. And Paul knew this. And that's why he was able to bring division into the court, because most Pharisees adhered to the letter of the law, but they missed and ignored its spirit. Does it sound somewhat familiar? The apostle insisted on pointing out the need for the heart of religion. He said, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew 
is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. You see, it was by the hardness of their hearts that the Pharisees rejected the Messiah. Theirs was nothing but dead orthodoxy, lifeless, fruitless, worthless. They scorned those who disagreed with them. They saw themselves as spiritually superior. They were descendants of Abraham. They were members of the 12 tribes. They were circumcised on the eighth day. They were participants in the annual feasts. They were regular worshipers at the temple, and yet sadly, they were not true Jews. They lacked saving or justifying faith. They scoffed at his birth. They rejected Christ's teaching. They had him nailed to a cross. And that's why Jesus said to them, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And they illustrated those sobering words that Paul told Timothy. You know them. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, having the appearance of godliness, but what? Denying its power. Eight times in one chapter, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For humbled sinners who are looking for mercy, Jesus always had a word of grace. But for these formalistic Pharisees, he reserved his severest rebukes. And there are many professing Christians, I hate to say it, who follow in the footsteps of the Pharisees. They profess to know Jesus Christ. They've been baptized. They attend public worship. They perform Christian duties. But inside, deep down, at the core of their being, they don't love Jesus. It's the appearance of godliness. And they fool many people, including themselves. And yet in the sight of God, according to Scripture, they're nothing more than religious hypocrites. Jeremiah points this out when he says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And you know something? I find this in my own life. Hypocrisy comes on gradually, doesn't it? Even amid the weekly rhythm of public worship. We sing the songs, we affirm the prayers, we recite the confessions, we hear the word, we partake of the supper, week after week after week. And bit by bit, by bit, our minds begin to wander. Our hearts slowly become dull. And we start going through the motions. And as we're lulled to sleep, the conscience is numbed, and a false sense of security sets in. And we become spiritually insensitive to the gentle proddings of the Spirit. I think you know what I'm talking about. And perhaps without even realizing it, we've slipped into the religion of the Pharisees. Few things, let me say, are more dangerous than the condition of those in Laodicea. 
Jesus said to them, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And such a strange indifference leads to a cold, detached, powerless piety. And perhaps you've struggled with this like I have. I think it's a challenge for all of us. We just can't get excited sometimes, right? And the only answer we can give is you pray. You pray as if it means something. Because only God can solve the problem of the religion of the Pharisees. That's the second worldview. Rationalism, formalism, but then there's a third one. It was that of the Apostle Paul whose perspective is what I'll call evangelical. And I know there are many definitions for that word evangelical. Let me tell you how I define it. By evangelical, I mean a person that sincerely believes and embraces the gospel. That's an evangelical. You believe it, you embrace it, you live according to it. And Paul not only affirmed the resurrection and angels and spirits, but he trusted in Christ. He was a genuine believer, and because of that, he had a good grasp on reality. His heart was good soil in which the seed of God's word had been planted. And that seed grew and bore fruit and did so a hundredfold. Paul knew the right use and true value of his reason. He engaged in the forms of religion, but he was neither rationalistic nor formalistic. He was an evangelical whose religion was a religion of the heart. As he says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Because that's where the Lord looks. He looks at the heart, inside, deep down. Man looks at the outward appearance. I see you in your Sunday best. You see me in my Sunday best. But the Lord looks on the heart. He sifts through the thoughts. That's to where the spirit goes, and that's from where the power of godliness flows. And if the heart is wrong, everything is wrong. So by all means, let's pray that we have a religion of the heart. If the heart is right, God will overlook many things. We're sinners. Let's face it. Our knowledge will be imperfect. Our worship is going to be defective. Our conformity to Christ is going to be flawed. Our duties are going to be lacking. But if our hearts are sound and sincere in trusting Jesus, then God is going to be gracious. And for the sake of Christ, he'll forgive what is lacking and accept us in his sight. So let's pray for the grace of God to persevere in evangelical Christianity. The rationalistic Sadducees were blind and couldn't see. The formalistic Pharisees were dead and couldn't feel. But the evangelicalism of Paul enabled him to be spiritually alive and in fellowship with Christ. And I think there are many today who are searching for things that are more reasonable than the old paths of religion. So my friends, beware of the modern restlessness with biblical truths. 
Beware of the modern interest in novel doctrines or practices. You don't have to make sense of everything to believe that it's true. Many others today are at such a low ebb that they're spiritually numb. So pray for the grace to be attentive, undistracted, enthralled in worship. How many times have we come here and been enthralled by the things of Christ? Pray for the Spirit to generate reverence for God and humility toward Christ. And pray for a tender conscience. That's a gift, you know. I know it's painful at times, but it's a gift. A tender conscience, an enlightened mind, and a fervent heart. Only he can give it. And look for, the, look for and value the least stirring of the Spirit of God. If you feel the least conviction, if you receive the slightest illumination from the Word, If you experience the smallest amount of sanctification, then thank God for his grace. Quietly, gratefully, conscientiously yield yourself to these stirrings. Because nothing, we talked about this in high school, Sunday school. Nothing quenches the spirit like ingratitude. And at the same time, persevere in worship. God's promised to bless these means of grace, and he may test your faith by withholding the sense of joy just to see if you'll persevere. You come to worship, you think, I don't feel anything. Well, he might be testing you to see if you're going to trust him in his word. He said, oh, bless it. I'll show up, Lord. I'll wait upon you. It's easy to engage in public worship when you feel like worshiping. It's an expression of true faith to do so when it is the last thing that you feel like doing. You show up because God said he'll bless. And in the words of the psalmist, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. May God enable all of us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.